And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. So let's talk about our study here this morning, Certainty in a World of Doubt, the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Soul Rx is what we're talking about this weekend. Also grab your sermon notes out. Let me read to you a quote on the top. This is from St. Augustine from his Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart or our soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. There is a kind of soul rest that all the sleep and vacations in the world can't give you. If your soul is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. If you have a healthy soul, you can go through anything. You can face anything. And whatever it is that you face, it will not destroy you because you have a healthy soul. If you have an unhealthy soul, if your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. So that's what we're gonna talk about here this morning. We're gonna really talk about who Jesus is, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. What are the implications of that? How does that work out in our life? So this soul rest, this soul health, this, this soul completeness and contentment can be found in Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So here's the three questions we're looking at is why we need it, where we get it, and how we do it, this, this Sabbath rest. But before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Let's invite God's help as he leads us through this study. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. And Father, your word tells us in Psalm 107, 9, that you satisfy the longing soul and the hungry soul you fill with good things. Jeremiah 31, 25 tells us you satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul you replenish. There are those of us who need this soul rest but don't know it. We're a bit oblivious to this reality going on deep in our hearts. So reveal, reveal their need for you in this soul rest to them this, this morning. And there are those of us who, who know we are desperate for this soul rest. Teach us how we can receive this, this soul rest, this soul wealth, so that no suffering in this world can take, take from it or no success in this world can add to it. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. I begin reading Luke chapter 6 verse 1. On, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said, this is pretty profound here, and he said to them, the son of man, referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Pretty profound statement. Not only is he identifying himself as God, but he's our rest. It's in him we find rest. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So why we need, 
why we need it, why we need this soul rest, verses one through four, help us answer that. The, the fourth of the 10 commandments directed that you had to rest from your work one day in seven. The religious leaders of the day had come up with 39 types of activity that you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping grain, which is what the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of doing. Do you guys think that maybe the Pharisees are a little bit too petty, to say the least? What's up with these guys? And I think they're, they're missing the point. And what Jesus really makes clear through this is that the Sabbath is not about rigorous adherence to a list of rules. It is about restoring and reinvigorating our relationship with God. I think this story also shows us really a, this vast contrast between uh, religion and the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, you see it throughout the gospel accounts between Jesus and the Pharisees. You see this, there's a major, major difference between religion and, and the gospel of Christ Jesus. And obviously, we see here that religion isn't, isn't the antidote, but only exacerbates this soul restlessness. The Pharisees' hearts are as shriveled as the man's hand that Jesus heals. And you can see that in their lives. So why we need it, because soul restlessness, here's your first fill in the blank, drives workaholism and other addictions. And those other addictions might be OCDs that you struggle with. You guys, how many know what OCDs I'm talking about? Okay. Yeah, OCDs, obsessive compulsive disorders. We, we just obsess over things. Do you ever obsess over anything? Like your kids, like money, like what, how you look, you know, any number of things like that. Those are all driven, that's that, that's that soul restlessness. The word addiction means it's defined as dependence upon a substance or a person or a behavior that provides a temporary sense of well-being. Second Peter 2, 19b says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I actually prefer the, the NIV rendering of that. It says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. What tends to master your life? Those are driven, You're, those things are driven by that soul restlessness. And so we are the most workaholic culture in the history of the world. And in fact, the modern situation means the human need for rest is enormously aggravated. Let me give you a, a, a list of things that really aggravate this, this whole idea of needing rest is that number one, insecure jobs. Jobs are insecure in our culture today. Number two, people at the top are expected to work longer hours. Number three, people at the bottom need to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet or, or work longer hours. Number four, technology means that you can work anywhere, which means you work everywhere. It's hard to say no to those things because we take our work with us. Number five, we define ourselves by our work. We live in a culture today where we define ourselves by our work, needing to prove ourselves through our work. So if we define ourselves by our work, we, we tend to try to prove ourselves through our work and that drives that workaholism. And so why we need it, because soul restlessness drives workaholism and other addictions or, or OCDs. Here's the next one, it strangles your soul. Soul restlessness will strangle your soul. Here in a few weeks we'll be looking at the parable of the sower. Remember the sower sows the seed, the seed represents the word of God. Falls on different kinds of soils. Soils represent our heart. One kind of soil that the seeds fall on is a, is a heart where these weeds grow up and begin to choke out the good plant, the word of God, so to speak. And so in Luke 8, 14, we have this example of, of the word of God in our lives being choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. In other words, we could put it this way, that the noise of life, the life gets so noisy and so many things that we're pursuing, the noise of life can easily drown out the voice of God. It strangles your soul to where you can't even hear the voice of God. You're just so distracted with so many things. That's that soul restlessness. 
And Matthew 4, 4 says, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's great that you want to take care of your body. You want to get the right amount of sleep at night. You eat right. You exercise. That's great. But there's more to life to that than that. And he's saying, if you really want to thrive in life, you need to hear his voice. You need to interact with God regularly. I mean, isn't the Christian life about having a relationship with God? Are you interacting with him? Are you talking to him? Is he talking to you? What has he been saying to you lately? How's your interaction with him? Are you hearing his voice? Or is life so busy, so noisy that it's drowning out the voice of God? Because soul restlessness strangles your soul. I've been reading through, I read, I read a couple times through this book. It's an interesting book. It's a good book. It's by John Ortberg. And uh, in this book, he, he, it's, it's titled uh, Soul Keeping, Caring for the Most Important Part of You. He goes through some indicators of soul fatigue and how our souls are kind of being restless or they're being strangled by the things of life, and he gives some really subtle indicators here. And let me, let me lay out some of these indicators here for you. Here's that you know that your soul is being strangled or it's fatigued, is things seem to bother you more than they should. Your spouse's gum-chewing suddenly reveals to you a massive character flaw. Show of hands, can you relate to that? You know it, man. I mean, those things that you, you know, you could get, no big deal, but then, man, when you just like soul fatigue, your soul's being strangled. It's like the slightest little thing, man, pushes you right over the edge. See, that's just a good indicator. That's really a good indicator. Here's another one. It's hard to make up your mind about even a simple decision. I mean, are you in touch with those things in your life? Why you tend to be driven and what's going on deep in your heart. Impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave are harder to resist than they otherwise would be. You are more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that leave you with high long-term cost. He gives an example here. Israel ended up worshiping a golden calf simply because they grew tired of having to wait on Moses and God. Or you, you have less courage he uses another example here. The same disciples who fled in fear when Jesus was crucified eventually sacrificed their lives for him. What changed was not their bodies, but their souls. So you don't have the courage that you used to have. And so, so drives workaholism and other addictions, strangles your soul, but here's the next one, robs you of joy. Robs you of joy. See, a Christian's life should be marked by joy, Philippians 4, 4, taste like joy, Galatians 5, 22, and be filled with the fullness of joy, John 15, 11. Let me ask you this. Everybody look up here just for a minute. Is that true about you? Would those that are closest to you, your spouse, your family members, your coworkers, would they say, wow, that person is full of joy? Or would they say that you're full of something else? <laughs> That's not nice, Pastor Ray. But I mean, I loved the honesty of, uh, of Josh here this morning. Did you hear what he said? That his wife, good thing his wife said that to him because I was going to have to say it to him. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but, but immediately it kind of made me think, I wonder what people think about, mine, about me. And then I started thinking too, I'm, my wife would tell me. <laughs> She doesn't hold back. She would certainly tell me those things, and I'm thankful for that. But what would people say to you? Have you lost that joy? It's, it really has to do with that soul restlessness. And by the way, the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. You can still be sad. The Bible says that we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves because we have hope. We have a... a confidence, a joyful confidence in Christ and who he is. And in fact, see, there should be a buoyancy in our life. Regardless of what happens to our lives, there should be a buoyancy. Yes, life can push us down, but it can't keep us down because, because we have a pleasure in the eternal privileges that are ours through Christ. Are you living there? That's, those are ours. We can experience that. But see, that soul restlessness robs you of joy. The opposite of joy is not sadness, but hopelessness, as I said. And joy is the mark of a justified person. 
When you know that you're in right relationship with God, there brings joy, and, and it is our greatest defense against sin that is joy. Joy is our greatest defense against sin. Here's the next one. It hides the rod in your soul. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Because soul restlessness hides the rod in your soul. Let me read to you Haggai. Haggai chapter one, verses five through eight. Haggai, where is that found in the Bible? Is that in the Bible? Did this guy just pulled this out of the sky? No, that's a, that's a minor prophet. You guys knew that, didn't you? Some of you, you've probably read that before. But listen to what Haggai has to say. He says, uh, now therefore, this is Haggai one, five through eight. And therefore, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, that's, that's a big statement. Uh, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take a look at your life. He's just saying, hey, take a good look at your life. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He's really saying, if you saw the video that we played for the men's retreat earlier, he's really saying what was said on that video, that we tend to think, I'll be satisfied, I'll be happy if I have just a little bit more. If I can just accomplish this, if I could just get this in order, if I could do this, if I could achieve this, if I could acquire these things, we've got all of our lists that say, and, and then I would be happy. He says, no, you won't. No, you won't. And so what happens is that we, if we don't pause long enough between these happiness highs and these pursuits, we'll never come to terms with the fact that there's an emptiness inside that nothing in this world can satisfy, only Christ can satisfy. In fact, I put it like this on my notes. The greatest danger with soul restlessness is that it can drive your busyness it can, it can so drive your busyness that it can be a kind of anesthetic, this busyness, and these achievements and these accomplishments, it can be a kind of anesthetic from experiencing the emptiness inside that only Christ can fill. So it hides the rot in your soul, but when you slow down enough, you begin to realize, wait a minute, there's nothing out here this way horizontally that can satisfy that deepest longing in my soul. Only he can do that. And then it destroys your body. Proverbs 14, 30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy or a restless soul makes the bones rot. And so a theology of rest is as important as a theology of work. You need to have both. Both have limits. So how do you, what is this theology of rest? What does that look like? We'll take a look at the next point. So where, where we get it, where we get it. It is astounding that Jesus said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm all about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is what I'm all about. Real quick, turn to the person next to you and see if they can define the word Sabbath. See if they even know what the word Sabbath means. Real quick, do that. So what are you guys thinking? Sabbath? What does Sabbath mean? Anybody? Yeah, Sabbath, so Sabbath rest, Sabbath rest, 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 yeah. Actually, Sabbath means rest. Sabbath means rest. In fact, uh, the definition I have here, Sabbath, a deep rest, a deep peace, a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of your life. So the one day a week rest we take is just a taste of the deep divine rest we need and Jesus is its source. And so what you've got to do is you must put verse 5 in our text with verse 11. You've got to combine those two verses together. Verse 5, he's claiming to be God. I'm, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 11 is what are they doing? They're plotting to kill him. This is the beginning stages of them wanting to, although they tried to kill him earlier, we read about that as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. Remember they tried to push him off, off of a mountain Remember that? Well, so they're still, they're, they're, there's, there's this plot going on. And so they're plotting to kill him. Killing him made him Lord of the Sabbath. Killing him made him Lord of the Sabbath. That was all part of his plan. And so what I'm going to share with you here, there's three big ideas here that are under this point. 
where we get it. This was revolutionary for me. I wish I would have learned it 20, 30 years ago. It took me, it was about a decade ago when I began to understand this. This has revolutionized, it's changed my life and really understanding. I want you to find the same sweet spot that I have found in Jesus being the Lord of your Sabbath and what the implications of that mean. Here's the first idea here, is that we are sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ's work, not our work. In Christ's work. There's your fill in the blank. This is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion of our world today. Oftentimes people say, well, isn't Christianity just like every, every other belief system? No, wrong. You obviously haven't studied it out because there's a major difference. This is it right here. Every other belief system is about earning or achieving salvation. That's religion. The gospel is about receiving salvation. It's receiving it. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Romans 5.8, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified is that word that means in right relationship with God. Since we are justified by faith, faith in Christ, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's stunning. That's an amazing verse. Peace with God. I have access into the throne room of God. I have a relationship with God. I've been reconciled to God. Yes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. By God's grace, his favor in our lives. On the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserve so that when we believe in him, we are treated as he deserves. That's amazing. That's the exchange that goes on when we put our faith in Christ. I get his righteousness. He received my unrighteousness. And he lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. On the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from God so that we could rest in the reality of never, ever being separated from God. Jesus made seven statements while he was on the cross. All of them are important, but one really really is significant to what we're talking about here is that Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. It was a declaration. It was a declaration of victory. It is finished. What is finished? In essence, literally, it means paid in full. Jesus paid it all. What did he pay it all of? What was that that he paid in full of? For you and I, Jesus paid it all. I mean all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins and your ticket to heaven, but he purchased every blessing and every answer to prayer you will ever, ever receive. That's amazing. He's, it's It's finished. He completed that. That's why we rest in him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what that means. You have access into the throne room of God. So if if your expectation of God's blessing depends on how well you feel you're living the Christian life, then you don't understand God's grace. Why haven't been doing so well lately? Well, it's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance. And you enter into it, and believe me, it will change your performance if you really understand that. Does that make sense? I mean, come on, we don't, we don't serve him and we don't love him to get his blessing. We have his blessing, therefore we serve and love him. Don't reverse the order, you become religious. That's religion. So by grace through faith in Christ, you have access into the throne room of God, you have his presence. That's my favorite thing about the Christian life. I love his presence. We talked about it today. We were singing about it. That last song is a wonderful song. In his presence is fullness of joy. You have his presence never to leave you or forsake you. If you're God's child, if you're God's child, you are never, ever, 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 ever alone, no matter what you feel, no matter what you're going through. It's not based on your performance. 
It's based on his performance. And the more you understand that, and the more you enter into it by faith, you go, okay, okay. Thank you, God. You're for me and not against me. Absolutely. That's where you begin to rest. You begin to rest and you go, okay, God, I have everything I need in you. That's why he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come unto me. Everybody look up here. This is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Come unto me, all you that burden and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why are you so stressed out? Why are you so bitter? Why are you so down in the dumps, depressed? Come to me, run to me. You will find rest for your soul. Oh my goodness. I want you to live in the sweet spot of what he offers us. I think we're gonna get to heaven and go, oh my goodness, there was much more than what I was even living up to. I mean, we're gonna go, my goodness, I, I lived way below my potential and privilege of what I have in Jesus. Yes, yes, we do, we do every day. We struggle to live to that level of what he offers us. I mean, there's, there's so much more. Here's, so here's, here's the next point. Here's the next point that you need to understand. To the degree I rest in the finished work of Christ is to the degree that I am set free from the relentless pressure of having to prove myself. So we rest in Christ for salvation, which includes our identity. Identity has to do with meaning and hope and happiness in life. Listen, your meaning, hope, and happiness is not in, in horizontal stuff. It's not in temporal stuff. If, it, if you put your meaning, hope, and happiness in that, it's, it's going to let you down, of course. Of course it's going to let you down. Your meaning, hope, and happiness is in the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus, regardless of the roller coaster you might be riding with your circumstances and your family and your finances and all the stuff that's happening in your life. I understand. But don't you don't build your identity on that stuff. You build it on Jesus. And you don't have to prove yourself. To the degree I rest in the finished work of Christ is to the degree I am set free from the relentless pressure of having to prove myself. We rest in Christ for salvation which includes our identity, our meaning, our hope, our happiness, why I exist. There is a work underneath the work. What? Yeah, the work under the work, the work under the work, it, it is this eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We live in a fallen world. We're fallen people. And so what we have deep in our heart that we have to work on, Christ works on for us and gives us and helps us to remedy this, is that there is this eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The best example of this is found in the, in the movie Rocky, Rocky One. You guys familiar with Rocky One? You guys, yeah, the movie? Interesting movie because in that movie, his uh, girlfriend wants to know, Rocky, why are you so driven? Why do you have to perform so at such a high level? Why are you running the streets of Philadelphia and, and doing all that you're doing to, to prepare for this bout, for this fight? And what does he say to her? I want to go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a what? A bum. I want to go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. So Rocky was being driven by this eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. We all have it. We're all fallen creatures until we come to faith in Jesus and then he begins to remedy this in our hearts. This eternal inner murmur of self-reproach is trying to know who you are and to show to yourself and to others that you're a significant person. The work under the work is the work of always having to prove yourself, always, always having to assure yourself that you're somebody important. But that work is never finished. It's never finished. Maybe that's why there were so many Rocky movies. 
I mean, they're like 20 Rockies. Yeah, it's just like, that first one wasn't enough. You had to go to another bow to fight a bigger guy, another person. I was like, ah, that's our, that's our lives. That's our lives. Next time you watch one of those reruns of Rocky, just think, that dude is chasing something that he'll never f- find that will satisfy deep within his heart. It's that eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when you look at creation as God's creating the heavens and the earth, he creates and he says, oh, that's good. And he creates something else. He goes, wow, that's really good too. And then he he continues through that. And then he creates uh, man and woman and says, wow, that's really good. And then it says in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then he rested from his work. What does that mean? Did God get tired? No, God doesn't get tired. What that means is that it means to be completely satisfied with what was done. He was completely satisfied. Now, you go into the uh, New Testament, and the New Testament kind of explains this for us so that we can understand this rest. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. I'd encourage you to read that whole chapter. It talks about this Sabbath rest that we have in Christ He's the Lord of the Sabbath. So then, it says, this is Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That sounds like an oxymoron. Strive? Work? To enter that rest? Yes. Yes, it's a battle that we have to battle every day. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, what he's talking about here is the nation of Israel. When they were set free from the Egyptian bondage, it should have taken them 14 days to get into the promised land. But what did they do? They wandered around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. That's what it's talking about here. Because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, God had a place of rest the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, milk, strength, honey, satisfaction. There's a sweet spot in Christ, in our relationship with Christ, that brings strength and satisfaction unlike you've ever experienced before. That's what he's talking about here. To the degree I rest in the finished work of Christ is the degree that I am set free from the relentless pressure of having to prove myself. See, if you believe the gospel and all of its remarkable claims about Jesus and what he has done for you and who you are in him, then nothing that happens in this world can actually add to or take away from your identity. I mean, think about this. The only person in the universe whose opinion matters loves you, adores you, gave his life for you. You were on a path of destruction to perish because of your sin. You were going to be eternally separated from God. And the God of the galaxies invaded our pathetic plight with his presence as a gift to give us fullness of life and to reconcile us to the Father once and for all and to redeem our lives. That is amazing. I love that. Oh, I've heard that before, Pastor Ray. Well, then why don't you start living like that? Because it would revolutionize your life. But you see, you need to be reminded of that every day. Every day you need to be reminded of that. Because we very seldom live up to that level, that potential that we have in him. Last weekend, Darren did a great job talking about Levi and the transformation that he experienced. Two weeks ago, I talked about really Peter and and a few of the other disciples and how when they had this encounter with Jesus, remember, they were in the boat, Jesus used Peter's boat, and then Jesus said, Peter, why don't you uh, throw the net on the other side of the boat? 
They'd been fishing all night, they hadn't caught anything, and Peter looks at him like, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman, you stick to being carpenter, and I'll stick to being a fisherman, okay? Now, he didn't say that, but he goes, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot, and he did, and he brought up one of the most magnificent catches that he's ever had, and it nearly sunk his boat, and he calls another boat over, and it nearly sunk their boat, and what's fabulous about this story is that he realizes this is God, and he goes, go away from me, I'm a man, uh, uh, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said to him, I want you to be a fisher of men. I want you to join my team. I want you to be a part of my family. And Peter left everything. He not only left his vocation, but Peter left the greatest catch he ever made. Now think about this, tons of money and success unlike he had ever experienced. I was interacting with one of our guys, it was uh, Gary Velasquez, and I said, so man, that's crazy. And he was getting ready, he was gonna teach this in his small group. And I said, so what do you think? Why did he, why did he do that? I mean, he was at the peak of his career after that. Why would he leave not just his vocation but this amazing catch? And, and Gary said, because he had the winning lottery ticket in Jesus. I go, good answer. That's awesome. Because he realized that all the money, all the wealth, all the success in this world didn't even come close to his relationship that he now had with the creator of the universe. And, and what he discovered a fishing beyond that fishing. He discovered a wealth and a success beyond that wealth and success. See, you have an identity in Christ that the worst kind of suffering can't diminish it. And the, and the most wonderful success in this world can't add anything to it. Make sense? That's what we have. That's what we have in Jesus. Now, immediately most people will say, well, wouldn't that make a person really lazy because they have everything in Jesus? Won't they just kind of like do whatever they want to do? Why would they do that? Why would they want to do that? No, that's, that's the next point. Those who know that salvation comes by grace, not our efforts, have an inner dynamic of grateful joy that empowers the greatest efforts. Tells us in Isaiah 57, 20, the wicked have no rest. So people who don't have God in their life, there's a restlessness in their life. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, right relationship with God, access into the throne room of God, all the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need in, in Jesus Christ. And because of that, Colossians 3, 1 through 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I think the best example of this is in the movie Chariots of Fire. The movie Chariots of Fire was based on the true story of two Olympians in the Paris competition of 1924. Eric Little and Harold Abrahams who were both trying really hard to win gold medals. They were both, both trying really hard to win gold medals. But Eric Little was a Christian who was willing to give up the chance for a gold medal in a race he was favored to win because he refused to run on the Sabbath. He had made a, a commitment. He had a personal conviction. He said, I'm never gonna run on the Sabbath. Guess what, his race came up on the Sabbath. He said, "Not, nah, not. Nah, I don't need a gold medal. I've got everything I need in Jesus. He's willing to, to forego that and, and so they, they put him in another race and he won a gold medal in that race later on in the week. Harold Abrahams, who is not a Christian, was competing out of a need to prove himself this. And you can see it in the movie. It's really quite vivid. There's this eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. In fact, he said just before he ran, he was running the 100-yard dash. And he says to his trainer, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. He won a gold medal, but it wasn't enough. And you could see the restlessness in his life. Eric Little, on the other hand, simply wanted to please the God who had already accepted him. That's why he said to his sister, his sister was saying, just forget the whole running bit, come back to the mission field. He was a missionary in China who later on died in the prison camps there. 
And, uh, and so he said to his sister, that's why he said to his sister, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He just said, hey, I'm just doing what, how God's wired me up, and this just does, becomes a platform so that I can give glory to him. Now, here's, here's really important that you, you, you track with what I'm gonna say here. Really important. Harold Abrahams was weary when he rested. Eric Little was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because Harold Abrahams was living to justify himself. Eric Little was living because he was already justified in Christ. So let me ask you that. That question, that's a good question. So are you living, so why do you do what you do? Why are you chasing the dollar like you're chasing it? Why are you working so hard? Why, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I don't know, Pastor Ray, I've been trying to figure that out for a long time. I hear you. Is it about you? How are you raising your kids? Is that about you? Or is it for God's glory? Are you doing it to justify yourself? Are you doing it because you're justified? See, that's a really important question. Are you resting in the fact that you have access to the throne room of God? You know the creator, sustainer of the heavens and the earth. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love his presence. I absolutely love his presence. I'm thankful for that. I don't know what I would do without him. Are you living to justify yourself or are you living because you are justified? Okay, how do we get this down into our heart? How do we do it? Verses six through 11 tells us Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. I love this story because it really shows us our lives are so shriveled up sometimes and so we need healing in our lives. The Sabbath is about replenishing the drain, repairing the broken, restoring that which is shriveled in our life. So there are two internal disciplines and then there are five external disciplines. You must start with the internal before you can do the external. If you do the external and you're not doing the internal, you're just wasting your time. Here's the internal that you need to do. First of all, internal disciplines. As an act of liberation, that's your next fill in the blank. As an act of liberation, you need to say this to yourself. This is the inner dialogue that needs to be going on regularly. My work doesn't define me. Christ defines me. My work doesn't define me, Christ defines me. Okay, turn to the people around you and say that real quick. Do that, we'll just practice it right here. My work doesn't define me, Christ defines me. Okay. Okay, so some of you actually need to add to that, okay? And this is what it needs to sound like. My getting married doesn't define me, Christ defines me. My marriage doesn't define me, Christ defines me. Having children doesn't define me, Christ defines me. Or how my children turn out, or getting accepted into my dream college, or my grades in school, or landing that job, or getting that promotion, or where I live, or how much money I make, or the car that I drive, or the house that I live in, doesn't define me, Christ defines me. There almost needs to be kind of this like, come on, bring it on, baby. <laughs> I mean, you need to have a little bit of tenacity, a little bit of toughness. It's like when you start feeling your heart being drawn into those things, you gotta go, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. That doesn't define me. What that person just said to me, that was mean and nasty. They don't define me. Christ defines me. I mean, that's, you gotta, you gotta go after it like that. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Follow the pathway of your greatest fears back into your heart and you'll discover where you have misplaced your identity. So when you have those inordinate, inordinate anxiety, bitterness, despair down in the dumps, oh my goodness, that's revealing to you. You have given your heart to something that's created, that's letting you down. You have misplaced your identity. He won't let you down. He'll never, ever, ever, ever let you down. 
So use that as an opportunity for an encounter with the living God. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm way too anxious. I should not be, I don't have the joy that I should have. Wait a minute, I'm too bitter. Why would I be so upset over what this person said to me? The God of the galaxies loves me, adores me, gave his life for me. Wait a minute, Lord, that's not real to me right now. That's more real what they're saying to me than what you've said to me. So through the work of your Holy Spirit, make that real in my life. That does not define me. You define me, Jesus. So there's that battle going on. What needs to to be ringing in your soul are the words we talked about back during our our teaching about four or five weeks ago. I don't know how many weeks ago. Unshakable identity. Some of you need to listen to that study again. Unshakable identity. And where Jesus heard those words, and these are words to us. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Luke 3.22. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You need to hear those words. Those are the words when your feet hit the floor in the morning, you need to be reciting those words. That God, I'm, I'm your cherished daughter. I'm your cherished son. You love me. You adore me. You gave your life for me. Lord, make those, those truths real to my heart. And, and even 2 Corinthians 5.21, you, as you memorize scripture and reflect on it, because you have the smile of God, because I have your smile, God, all other frowns are inconsequential. Because I have your smile, All other frowns are inconsequential. Here's number two. This is the internal internal disciplines. Really important. As an act of trust, I am not the one who keeps the world running. Woo! Yes, you control freaks. (laughs) Who died and made you God? I mean, you guys have heard that before, have you? Okay. Maybe some people have said that to you. So it might sound something like this. In fact, let's, let's practice that real quick with the people next to you. I am not the one who keeps the world running. Real quick, do that. I am not the one who keeps the world running. I am not the one that keeps the world running. How many perfectionists do we have in the house? Perfectionists, workaholics. Okay, there's more of us in here. There's more of us in here than four or five. Okay, you guys, come on. So here's what it might sound like. I am not the primary provider of my family's needs. God is. Rest in him. I am not the savior of my friends or my coworkers or my children's souls. You got a kid going south, you're not the savior of their soul. Find your deepest satisfaction in God and let them know that you're really sad that they're going south and they're headed for really a troubled time but that's not gonna take your joy from you, okay? Does that make sense? You're gonna show them in your life that your joy in him is more powerful, your hope in him is more powerful than anything that could ever happen in your life, whether it be your, your child or a family member or a spouse or whatever. That's, that's, that's it. I am not the savior of my friends or my coworkers or my children's souls. I am not the sustainer of my marriage. I am not the one ultimately responsible for the direction of our government, politics, and country. Woo! Some of you need to say that a bunch and turn the TV off and quit watching so much news. You're too stressed out over that stuff. Chill, man. Who are you trusting? I mean, I'm looking at your life and you don't seem like you're trusting God. You're freaking out. God's in control. He's still on the throne. And, uh, and so keep that in mind. So that's, that's part of that. It is not my job to fix the people in my life. It's not your job to fix the people in your small group. I know they rub you raw, but man, it's not your job to fix them. Just point them to Jesus. No matter how much they rub you hard, you just show them that you've got greater joy in Jesus through that. I'll do anything to follow Jesus, but I don't have to do everything for Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds, the universe by the power of, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. <laughs> I gave you some other verses to study, reflect on. We're almost finished here. Station 18, I was doing my vehicular as a firefighter paramedic. It was in the early days. Me and my buddy, we went to a code. It was ugly. It was a horrible code, full-blown resuscitation. And uh, we were working with two other senior medics, and the guy died. We were devastated. We went back to the station. The senior medic set us down at the table, his old station 18. He looked us in the eye, and he said, listen, guys, 
We were going to let you kill this guy, okay? Because we were standing by. You guys did everything you could do. But you need to know this, that people live and die in spite of what you do. You do the best, and then you let the chips fall where they may. Now, he wasn't a Christian, but immediately I began to realize, and God spoke to me, that's life. You be responsible, you do the best you can, but people live and die in spite of you. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory's in the hands of the Lord. You do the best you can, and you leave the results to God. And that's important. That's an important part of that. So here's some external disciplines. Almost finished. Right fast. Here we go. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually to do those things that inflame your passion for Christ. See, that's our problem, is that we love, we have disordered loves. And those things have a hold on our life that we love more than we love, love Jesus. See, I'm going to love my wife well when I love Christ first and foremost. If I love Christ the most, I'm going to love her really good because it's going to come out of this overflow of what I have in him. And so I've got to inflame my passion for Christ. By the way, if you want to do that, come out this Wednesday night between 6.30 and 8 o'clock. We're going to do that. We're not only going to inflame our passion for Christ through our linger night, but we're going to pray for our lost loved ones for Easter and see what God wants to do for our Easter services and what he's going to do around during this season. Because this is a great time for us to reach a lot of folks with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So join us this Wednesday night for that. Balance your Sabbath time. Adoration, rejoice in who Christ is and what he has done for you. Just revel in the reality of who he is and what he's done for you. Avocational, do things you don't typically do. If you fish for a living, don't go fishing. Actually, I have a guy on Saturday night, that's what he does. And uh, he goes, oh, man. I like to fish. It's re- relaxing. Well, you probably need to do some other things too. And then apathy, unstructured, unplanned activity to think and feel whatever. Be accountable for Sabbath time. My wife and I hold each other accountable. Well, I've also got staff members and we've got, I've got an eldership that holds me accountable for all that stuff too. Number four, establish limits to your work. I have self-imposed deadlines for my sermon prep so I don't obsess over things like my sermons. When I get it done, I get it done, it's in. Even if I don't feel good about it, I just got to go with it as good as I can go. That's it. So at some point, you've got to have those, you gotta have those limits. And then community, brainstorm with a few uh, Christian friends who will help you to balance your time. Now, real quick, here's my question for you. Anybody here have perfect relationships? Your relationships are perfect in every way. Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, then if, you're, if you think you do, and if you do have perfect relationships, don't bother coming next weekend, okay? <laughs> but if you don't have perfect relationships, make sure you come next weekend because we're going to talk about true community. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to really get into some nitty-gritty of our relationships. I think it's going to be really helpful for you. Hey, if you don't know Jesus, what are you waiting for, man? (laughs) Give your life to him. Repent. Believe. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Give your life to him. Give your life to him. You can do that today between you and him in your heart by prayer through faith. Let me give you a blessing. Here's my blessing for you. The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves for we are already proven and secure in Christ Jesus. The pressure is off for us to make a name for ourselves. You don't need to make a name for yourself. Jesus has already made a name for us. Listen to what he's made a name for us in 1 John 3.1. Here it is. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Soak that up. Live in the reality of that, and you will find rest for your soul. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.